0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 73, Slipping into Summer, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 15th. And we're reminded that summer is still summer, even if surgical masks present a unique set of challenges for normalizing vitamin D levels. at I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed was a fascinating one, and we saw several developments worth noting. First of all, the FOMC meeting didn't disappoint insofar as a cautious and dovish tone was struck by Powell, But it did fall short of expectations for some in the equity market, as evidenced by the roughly 6% sell-off on Thursday. Now, part of that has to do with the fact that the equity market had continued to outperform and came into the week somewhat vulnerable It was vulnerable in terms of a fair amount of positive economic momentum priced in, and it was also vulnerable from a technical perspective insofar as we had stochastics well into overbought territory. Now, this was also consistent with the technical profile of the rates market, where we saw momentum well into oversold territory. Our biggest takeaway from the week is that the range has been confirmed. Now, the range is notably wider than it was, say, two or three weeks ago, and the lower bound in 10-year yields is still represented by 54 basis points, and the upper bound is now 95.5 basis points. There's a micro range within that, however, in which the 68 basis point 40-day moving average should provide something of a focal point as we set up for the week ahead the recent economic data has served to further cement the idea that April will represent the troughs for the economic data during the first half of the year. Concerns about an increase in COVID-19 cases, particularly in some states in the U.S., also contributed to the downward pressure on risk assets and ultimately supported treasuries. Our final primary takeaway from the week comes from the Fed's projections. The FOMC issued their rates projections for 2020, 21, and 22. In all of those years, the Fed made it very clear that they have no intention of attempting to normalize rates. So no rate hikes until 2023 at the earliest, and we will get a better sense as the year plays out whether 2023 is even an option. As a result, this means that the shape of the yield curve is going to continue to be a directional trade, and that dynamic was very clear last week with the steepening that we brought into the week quickly running up against extremes, resulting in a significant flattening as treasuries rallied and risk assets came under pressure.
2: So are we entering the second wave or the second phase?
0: Well, that seems to be the biggest question in financial markets at the moment. The sharp price action in equities and risk assets on Thursday really repriced expectations for the pace of the recovery. Now, it was very consistent with some of the reports out of Texas, California, and Arizona, as well as Florida, that there have been increasing cases of COVID-19. The second wave was always a risk for the U.S. economy. And as we contemplate what this means for growth going forward, one of the biggest questions is whether or not the second wave ultimately leads to another nationwide or near nationwide lockdown. Our base case scenario is that while there might be certain cities that revive the stay-at-home orders, on net the broader economy will continue functioning and not transition into full lockdown mode like we saw in March and April. One of the other things that I took away from last week was the importance and the relevance of the trading range in 10-year space, 10s and 30s to a lesser extent, but really that 54 to now 95 basis point range in 10s is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. We will eventually emerge into a trending market, and presumably it'll be a trending market toward higher rates, but that's going to be fourth quarter of 2020, first quarter 2021, or potentially beyond. If we take any guidance from what the Fed said on Wednesday, they made it very clear that they had no intention of increasing the target policy rate until 2023 at the earliest. Now, recall the way that the Fed's projections come out on a bit of a rolling basis. By the time we get to the September FOMC meeting, we will have the 2023 projections, which at present at least represents the most meaningful risk for a liftoff or a normalization. Again, it's too early for us to have a particularly strong call on that. But as the contours of the pandemic are revealed and the depth of the economic damage becomes evident, the market will have a better sense of what to expect from the Fed in the coming years.
2: Yeah, Ian, and really what we're getting at here is the degree to which the second wave is priced in, and not simply from a case count perspective, but also exactly as you say, the likelihood or not that there will be that there will be another round of widespread lockdowns. Now, we've been of the mind that rising cases have been priced in, whereas a repeat of stay-at-home orders on a scale that we saw in March, April and May probably isn't. But that being said, it was clear from the June FOMC meeting that Powell was quote unquote, not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And clearly the committee stands ready to act further in the event that we see an economic hit reminiscent of what we've already experienced, even if the magnitude of that downdraft is not as
0: severe as the first time around. So that begs the question then, why do we see a 6% sell-off in stocks on Thursday? My take was, and we made this point going into the week, that risk assets were on a vulnerable footing given the upside that they had seen over the preceding two or three weeks. You can see that in the technical profile with stochastics decidedly in overbought territory ahead of the FOMC meeting. And so a reversal on some level one could argue, is a bit of a constructive outcome. And my thought here is simply that if a second wave is worth, call it, 6 to 10% in equity valuations, then that will simply provide a buying opportunity for investors who might have missed out on the run in the S&P 500 off that 2100 low that we saw in the middle of March.
2: And thinking about when we saw that low in mid-March, You have to imagine there were plenty of people that were buying that dip, if the price action is any indication. So even though the second half of this last week was troubling for equity markets, the fact that risk asset investors were given the opportunity to take some profit, substantial profit in some cases, off the table from those lows in March, really, to me at least, is not all that surprising, especially with the backdrop of an economic hit that may not ultimately be as bad as some feared. Clearly, there are some in the market that have viewed the moves of the past six, eight weeks as a mulligan from what was a obviously extremely volatile start to 2020.
0: There's also a degree of implied faith in monetary policy officials and their ability to not only do everything within their power to prop up the domestic economy, but that the actions that they take will be effective. And I think that that is one of the bigger unknowns as we consider the balance of 2020, Will what the Fed has done and what Washington has delivered be sufficient to turn the tide for the domestic economy, or is it, as we've been expecting, what initially appears to be a V-shaped recovery quickly devolving into a W-shape or something a bit choppier as the labor market struggles to re-engage laid-off workers and find a new equilibrium of sorts?
3: Yeah, Ian, and I think that's part of the nuance that's going on here. You know, if we go back over the past couple months, we've seen a few different regimes. You could call it regime one, building concern about the virus, entering into lockdown, financial crisis, for lack of a better word. Part two was then on lockdown. When do we get out of this? How are the reopenings going to go? huge Fed liquidity injection, stabilization in financial markets. Okay, equities outperform, rates stay low, kind of falls intuitively. What it seems to me is we're now entering part three. And part three is going to be how quickly does the labor market recover? How quickly do these deflationary impulses work their way through markets? And how quickly do some of these reopenings either extend or start to pull back. You know, there's been talk about major cities such as Houston reimposing lockdowns, but at the same time, talk of the probability of something on the national scale being much smaller. So it seems to me that the Fed has kind of matched that. You know, if they go through their emergency cuts in March period where they wouldn't even tell us more than a week out how big QE was going to be, all of that has also pivoted in June. So now they're giving longer term guidance on QE. They felt comfortable putting out a new dot, and it really does seem that we're moving into this new regime. So I like the way that you phrase this of how quickly are people going to be able to be reincorporated back into the labor market? You know, at the end of the day, given the nature of the shock, we don't know. At best, we can kind of model it and try to guess and pay attention to some of these higher frequency economic indicators, such as initial jobless claims or continuing claims.
2: And John, your highlighting of that extended plan around QE, in my mind, was one of the biggest takeaways from the statement and SEP at the Fed meeting. The guidelines that the current pace of buying will operate as a floor going forward clearly gives the Fed flexibility to increase purchases as needed. And even still, the pace of $80 billion a month in treasuries came in at the higher end of what the market was expecting. So that, on the margin, was a dovish surprise, which meshed well with the knee-jerk reaction right after that information was released, even if Powell's press conference took a bit more cautious tone. Not necessarily new information, but telling as to the market's reaction function, if nothing else.
0: Well, the committee also very clearly kept yield curve control alive. And while that was something that has been debated whether or not the FOMC was serious about it, my takeaway from the press conference was, not yet. It's on the radar. If things get bad enough, it's yet another tool that the Fed has at their disposal to keep control over the U.S. rates market if they need to.
2: And outside of the monetary policy aspect, the topic of further fiscal stimulus is also lingering in the background. And alongside further fiscal stimulus is the issuance landscape. This past week, we saw somewhat uninspired results at the 10- and 30-year auction, but here I'll offer that that's in no way suggestive of any lack of broad-based demand for treasuries. After all, since the yield spike following NFP, the entire curve repriced very substantially to lower rates. Add on top of this the fact that the intraday price action going into both 10s and 30s lacked any real concession. The fact that we saw two-tailed auctions, not enormous by any means, was more a testament to the latest retracement from the yield peaks than anything more systemic on the primary market front. So looking to this week and the first 20-year reopening after last month's initial refunding, the degree to which we see the concession going into that event, I think will be the most important variable in determining how that auction goes. It will almost certainly be taken down without any real issue, but particularly early in the week, another round of big duration supply could offer a bit of a bear steepening impulse, all else equal.
0: On the topic of the fiscal side, one of the background factors out there that has really failed to create much of a headwind for risk assets at this point is the election in November. Now, at the moment, it seems as though the probability is high that Biden takes the White House. And while the pandemic certainly complicates matters as a baseline assumption, at least at the beginning of this year most people had penciled in the potential for tax increases associated with a Democrat winning the presidential election. If that were to come to fruition, we could see the beginning of 2021 and beyond, refocused on a conversation about deficits, ballooning issuance versus increased taxes, and what that might or might not do to the pace of consumption. Now, it's obviously a difficult time to justify increasing taxes given everything that's going on in the labor market, but fast forward three or four quarters, if there is some type of sustainable recovery in place, that might create yet another hurdle to returning to the levels that we saw late in the last expansion.
3: And Ian, to go one step beyond that, I think it's 100% correct that eventually the federal debt and taxes will come back into vogue, but we also need to consider state and local taxes. A lot of states, cities, counties are having their budgets enormously squeezed, which all else equal, should lead to both higher taxes and a period of austerity. Now, it's probably not going to be as aggressive at the federal level, but as this occurs, it operates as yet another drag on consumption because, after all, almost everybody has to pay state and local taxes in addition to their
2: federal taxes.
0: So what you're saying is that the only two certainties in life are taxes, and macro horizons.
2: Yeah, no, I I think that's how that goes.
0: Had to be, right? In the week ahead, the treasury market will have the benefit of a few key data points to provide trading direction, the most notable being retail sales. The May retail sales figures are expected to increase roughly 7%, and while that might seem optimistic given what we know about the broader economy, it's largely a function of reopening and rebuilding. On Tuesday and Wednesday, Chair Powell will be presenting to the Senate and the House Expectations are for effectively a rehash of what we saw on Wednesday, but this is an event in which the Q&A can sometimes trigger tradable headlines, so it will warrant watching. From rates perspective, we continue to see the newly redefined trading range holding, and that's one of our themes between now and the end of the year. Currently at roughly 71 basis points, anywhere between 65 and 78 basis points will be consistent with a period of consolidation, and that price action is further reinforced by last week's price action as well as the technical profile. In terms of supply... Wednesday offers the second 20-year auction of the cycle at $17 billion. It will be notable how the supply is taken down. However, when we think about the introduction of new benchmarks, our baseline expectation is always that the first several auctions are reasonably well-received. And given the duration-heavy nature of the twenty-year, we expect that to be thematic throughout the balance of the year. Once we make it to the latter part of the fourth quarter, the notion of saturation might be far more relevant than it is at this point. Beyond that, the initial jobless claims figures will continue to help provide context to the extent of the damage done by the pandemic to the domestic labor force. It will also be key in refining expectations for the June employment series released in early July. We'll be keeping a watchful eye on the shape of the yield curve, but expect that the bulk of the steepening that we've recently seen has consistent with the broader rates market reached a point where a period of in-range consolidation provides the path of least resistance. The broader issue about whether or not a second wave of the pandemic will result in a series of stay at home orders and extension of the lockdown remains very top of mind. The bulk of investor sentiment around that dynamic, however, will be played out in the domestic equity market, and treasuries will see a residual either flight quality or reverse flight quality impetus, which, if anything, simply serves to further confirm the range that we expect to be in place throughout the summer. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks. And condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As the second wave of the COVID-19 outbreak looms, please stay safe, stay distant, and stay sane, whatever that means anymore. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingan at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmo.cm.com/macrohorizons/legal.